going to be a glorious day, isn't it, church? Yes. Wow. If you have your Bible with you, how about if you open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have one, you're going to find them in the racks right there around you. And uh, if you want, you can follow along on the screen as well. You know, Hebrews chapter 12. And then I'm going to ask you to put your finger or put a bookmark in Genesis chapter 25 because we're going to go to both passages. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to start and, and also Genesis 25. But uh, before we get into that, a couple details for you. We have reason to celebrate this morning because 35 people prayed to receive Christ this weekend, or this last Thursday night, right? Pretty cool. That's the fruit of the Christmas Eve services, and you're just thrilled for what God did among us. Um, and one more detail, I want to pray with you before we get into uh, the text, and that detail is related to year-end giving. If you're going to be doing any year-end giving this particular week ahead of you, we need you to know that this week, between now when the services end today and, and the first of the year, um, the offices kind of go into slowdown mode so staff can spend time with their families, and so you won't be able necessarily to bring a year-end gift to the church unless maybe you called in advance or something like that, but if you're going to do a year-end giving, the offering boxes obviously are available today, or you can give online. You can do it that way. Or perhaps you might decide to mail in, but it just needs to be postmarked before the, the 31st. So if you're considering that, great. We could definitely use the help here at the church for you to be able to participate that way. Let's pray together and invite God to be our teacher as we step into the text. Would you join me in that? Father, we're, first of all, we thank you for the, the souls that have um, turned their lives over to you. And this last Thursday night, just a huge celebration for us to be able to know of, of the new believers you brought into the kingdom in this last week, more than 50 people uh, between last weekend and Christmas Eve, God, and that's only because you did it. It's your work, and so we give you the praise and the honor that people came to the place where they realized who Jesus is. Father, we ask right now that as we take on this text that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and I pray especially for hearts to respond. I pray for those who are new believers and for those who are um, maturing believers. And Father, for those who are seeking to understand you, who have not yet committed their life to Christ, that, that you would open up hearts and you would speak because of the power of your Holy Spirit who has freedom in this place. God, we invite that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12 because it starts out with this uh, specific instruction that he's writing to believers. So look with me on the screen or in your own Bible, and it says this in chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. I want to kind of bear down on that word sanctification for just a minute. And if you grab notes this morning, maybe you have the bulletin, your notes are inside there, but there's a couple of Greek words you need to be familiar with. And this first one that comes up is this word hagiosmos. It's kind of a big $10 word, right? But the root of it is this word hagios. And God used this word a lot in the Old Testament when he was calling Israel to himself as a people for himself. He would say to them, you're holy to me. Well, it's that word hagios. So hagiosmos is the act or the, the sanctification process by which something is made holy. Now, as we read it in the context of that verse, we might look at it through first glance and say, what? Is he saying there's like salvation by works? Because it's saying pursue peace and pursue holiness and then we'll be saved? Is that what he's saying? 
Well, obviously that's not what he's saying because we're not saved by works, we're saved by the grace of God. So we need to understand what's being said here. So let's go back to the first sentence. Look with me on the screen or in your Bible and it says this again, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You need to understand in the Bible there's two forms of sanctification. There's positional sanctification and that positional sanctification is something that you have as a believer in Jesus. So if you're an individual this morning who says, I am definitely a follower of Jesus Christ, He's my savior and I know where I'm going when I die. Then you have positional sanctification. You're already there. That means God sees you as holy. Even if you don't see yourself as holy, God sees you as righteous, right? Okay. I know that's a hard thing to get through our head because we don't always see ourselves that way, do we? We don't always see ourselves as holy. So how about if you do this with me? And it might be hard for you to do. On three, I'm going to ask you to say this out loud. I am holy. One, two, three. I am holy, right? Sometimes it feels a little creepy to say that because we think of that. That's like those people who are really, really up high. What God says, he sees us that way. That's positional sanctification because of what Jesus did. So understand, only believers can say that. Because a person who's not a believer, a person who's not saved, they can't ever reach peace. They can't ever reach holiness because that's what God does through us. So you have to be able to be a believer to say that. That's positional sanctification. But here's the second one. The second one is called practical sanctification. And that's the daily process by which God working through us makes us more like our position. So what we're saying here is our practice, our daily habits have to match our position, right? Our practice has to match our position. God sees us as righteous, so we would behave righteously. So you see it in verse 15, he says especially this word, and if you, if you like to hunt or fish, this word will mean a lot to you. The word pursue when he says pursue sanctification, he's talking about hunting it down, right? Like you would hunt down a game. So if, if you're a guy or a gal who likes to carry a weapon into the woods or maybe you like to go fishing, you know what it is to pursue wild game. That's the same thought he's using here. Pursue it, chase it down. So with that thought in mind, let's go into verse 15. This is the way he amplifies it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, as you can tell, by the mention of the name Esau, that's why I had you put your finger in the book of Genesis in 25. We'll go there in just a minute. I want you to understand why I called this teaching obstacles to your destiny, especially as we're on this threshold of 2016, right? We're looking forward to the new year, and we're wondering what it holds for us. Well, I can tell you right now, there's going to be some obstacles to the things that God wants to do in your life, and they're mentioned right there in verse 15 when he says, see to it. See to it, first, first of all, look with me on the screen of these two things that I notice that are obstacles to us getting to the point where God wants us to be. And I'm not talking about being saved. I'm talking about people who are believers who are really striving to be what God wants them to be. The first obstacle is personal impurity, what the Bible calls fornication. It means being involved in things that God said absolutely no, stay away from. That's just behavior you shouldn't participate in. And the second one is a failure to lay hold of the things that God brings your way, the blessings and the opportunities that are available to you. So notice what he says in verse 15, see to it. It means look carefully, watch, 
with your eyes wide open. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here, it's in your notes this morning, is this word episcopal, and, and it's where we get the root word for the uh, Episcopal church. The phrase that's used, episcopal, means to be an overseer. Episcopal means to see to it, watch over, and what are you watching over? Yourself and those whom you're in community together with in the church. We're watching over these issues. What are we watching over? Well, he lists it for us in three stages. You'll see it on the screen. I just kind of broke it down, but it's right there in verse 15. First of all, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person. That sounds like people outside the church. How could that be? Well, he's writing to believers here. So how does a believer fall short? Here's how by remaining a baby Christian, by failing to progress forward in the faith, meaning like, I got my ticket to heaven, man, I'm totally good, I'm gold, I'm just gonna go into neutral mode. Well, th that's not progressing forward in the faith, so we fail, we fail to move forward and we fall short. Oh, what's the outcome of that? Well, the outcome of that is when negative circumstances come along, things that are really hard in your life, when you run into an illness issue, or maybe a relationship issue, or a, a job change, and you've got nothing to lean into because you've never grown in your faith, it can cause you to fall short of the grace of God. You're not apprehending what's available to you. And here's what it causes. It causes a moral separation. I'm not talking about eternal separation. A moral separation between you and God. And it becomes really negative. So the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, verse 16, look on the screen. He, he says, let us draw near with what, church? Draw near with confidence, right? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of when? Need. See, when things are going bad, Things are not going the way that I intended for them to go. When obstacles come up, God says, come to me and come to me with confidence because I sit on a throne of grace. I'm gonna give you mercy if you come to me. But if you're a baby Christian and you're not progressing forward in the faith and you just decided to go into neutral mode, you're not gonna know what it's like to go to God. So you know what that does? That moral separation, it begins to bring up a root of bitterness when things go bad. And that's why he says the next thing, the root of bitterness. And we're told according to the writer, that affects other people. We think when we're bitter inside, it's just about us. That we're just affecting our world. But scripture says when we're bitter about things that have gone negatively in our life, it really affects the entire community. So if we fail to seek God's grace during really hard times of trial, it leads to this bitterness from the suffering that we're going through. And the effects of bitterness are never localized. It poisons the entire community. So that's why he gives us those, those first two. Don't fall short. Don't let that root of bitterness spring up. And the third one I want to save for the story of Esau because we get to watch it fleshed out in his life. So remember the, the framework of thinking here. Don't be like Esau, right? Let's go into Genesis 25. And we're picking it up at verse 21. You'll follow along on the screen if you want. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Now this is Abraham's son, right? Okay, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. That poor mom. I mean, she's got twins, right? 
And, and this is not like babies kicking. This is boys duking it out inside the womb, right? And she's wondering, what's going on? So scripture says she goes to prayer. She goes, God, if I'm blessed of you, why is this this way? Well, God comes back and talks to her. And look with me at verse 23, the Lord's response. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Hmm. God really knows personalities even while we're in the womb, right? Okay, move forward with me into the next verse, verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in the womb. Now the first came forth, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Sounds like a beautiful baby, doesn't it? Wow, your, your baby's like a hairy carpet, right? <laughs> what a bad compliment. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Watch the next verse. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So mom and dad each have their own favorite kids, right? Each, each got one, and everybody apparently knows it. Could two guys who were twins be more different? Jacob, he sits in this quiet, contemplative mode. He's in the corner of the tent listening to NPR. He's got the symphony dialed in, right? And then we've got Esau, who's densely hairy. He's, he's red-haired and red-skinned. He's a total wild man. So you've got Wall Street versus redneck, right? Okay, these two guys were from the same womb, and they're growing up together. Absolutely opposite in their appearance and in their mannerisms and opposite in their belief, even though they grow up in the same house together, drastically different. One's wearing camo and driving a four-by-four. The other guy's subscribing to Culinary Magazine and watching the cooking shows, right? And so Esau's driving his four by four and he pulls up to Jacob's kitchen because he's hungry. Watch verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. He totally sounds like a redneck, does he? He doesn't even know to call it soup. Red stuff, man. And for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, Edom is a nickname, right? When you, when you hear that, and this is an important phrase in the story as it plays out. It, they, literally, when they would see Esau in the future, they would say, hey, Red, how you doing? He's got red hair, he's kind of red-skinned, he's living like a redneck, right? Okay, so we've got here this individual who's picked up a nickname, Edom, and, and he's the progenitor of the nation of the Edomites. That, that's really significant as we move forward. Now, probably what he's eating here, what he's been served, is made from Egyptian lentil beans. Many forms of lentil beans across the planet, but the Egyptian lentil beans are incredibly high in protein. Matter of fact, soybeans as we know it today are probably the only vegetable that has more protein than Egyptian lentil beans. 26% protein in that little pod that comes off that bush so Esau hears that his brother's cooking, and he goes in and he can smell it. Oh, man, what do you got on the stove? 
and a little bit of venison mixed in with it, and it's been simmering on the stove for a while, and so he exaggerates by saying, I'm starving. Parents of teenagers, you ever heard that before, right? Okay, I don't think he's a teenager in this place because he's making adult decisions here. So watch verse 31, but Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Like, what? Give me all the blood in your veins, man. Why is he asking for something so monumental? Well, Jacob really knows his brother well, right? So watch Esau's response. Verse 32, Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? If you read the actual Hebrew language, it says my life daily is at risk. Because he's the guy who's out hunting, right? He's climbing cliffs, he's up on rocky faces, he's, he's encountering wild game. What use is a birthright to me? As a matter of fact, if you have the King James Version of the Bible this morning, your, your Bible says, of what profit is it to me? Why does he say it that way? Well, because in that world, you could sell or barter your birthright. It was something that you could use as a commodity to sell to someone if you wanted to change your position. Well, what was he giving up? Well, I've, I've identified four of them for you of the, of the things that belong to somebody with a birthright you'll see on the screen. Uh, I don't think they're in your notes, so you might need to write these down, but here, here's the deal. If you were the firstborn in the family, you received a double portion of the inheritance. So if I'm second born and I get $100,000 when my dad passes away, the first born gets $200,000, right? There's a bonus if you're, if you're just by being the first born, but look what else. You got to determine family investments. In other words, when Isaac passed away, Esau got to determine, do we put our money into soybeans this year or do we put it into lentil? Well, how do we invest our money? So therefore, that person got to determine family destiny. Are we going to take on that field? Are we going to buy that plot of land? Because the family stayed together as a unit. And here's the big one. That one got to determine family worship. The, the outflow in, involved within all that is that one got to determine who got to be blessed to marry so-and-so, selection of brides and selection of grooms. Now, I've had lentil soup before. Anybody here in the church had lentil soup before? Quite a number of us, Right? I mean, it's tasty, but would you trade your destiny for it? I, I've had steaks that are good, but I certainly wouldn't trade my destiny for it. What's going on here? Why exchange your future this way? Why trade what could be for immediate gratification? Why trade away your destiny? Throughout human history, our ancestors have done exactly the same thing. Eve, in the garden, perfect creation traded for a passion. Eve, God knows in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will not surely die. You will become like God. What's the next thing Eve does? Well, I mean, give me the fruit. I'll eat of that. She trades perfection for her passion. Esau, you're watching him trade his future for food. Judas, he trades God for money. A detail you might not be aware of, when Judas sold Jesus 30 pieces of silver, he sold him for the minimal lowest commodity price that you could sell a human for in the first century. The price of a dead slave. If you're driving your cart and you've got some oxen and you happen to kill someone accidentally, 
you had to pay the owner of that slave 30 pieces of silver. Judas sells God for the price of a dead slave. What's going on? Why do people do these things? Well, today, people still travel down this same path, exchanging what could be. How do we do that? By taking lightly the things of God. And and that's the third component I wanted to come back to. We covered the first two, but let's go back into that verse first before we do that. So keep your finger in Genesis, but go back with me to Hebrews again. Hebrews 12, verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Uh, remember these stages we've gone through, right? He said, first, don't let anybody fall short. Don't fail to apprehend the grace of God in the midst of hard times, and by that, the root of bitterness spring up. And here's the third one, that there be no godless or profane person, meaning this, a person who tramples under the things of God. Now, you might be thinking, I've never done that. I ask you to check yourself on that because I know that I've done it. God brings opportunities along, things that he wants us to respond to, ways that he shows us we should behave, and we tend to recoil because of what we want. So if you're gonna take a biblical interpretation of this profaner, a person who tramples on spiritual matters, one who's living for things of the world and not for things of God. Now speculation on my part, right? Just hear this next part, just speculation. But I believe that it's safe to say Esau is already looking for a reason to dump this responsibility. How do I know that? Because I know humans well, just like you do, right? I are one. And human nature is to not turn over something like this so easily. People don't give in this easily unless they're already thinking this way, like man, I've been shouldering this responsibility a long time. There's no way I want to be determining family destiny. I don't want to have to determine family worship. I like to go hunt. I want to go spend my time in the woods. Don't ask me to take on all this responsibility. Now hear this. Unlimited blessings are available to this guy through his birthright, but he's going to fail to take hold of them. And in this case, the birthright puts him in the line of descendants that leads directly to the birth of Jesus Christ if he had been faithful to what God had called him to do. So let's jump back into the story. Go with me to verse 33 and watch this play out. It says, and Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now Jacob is totally an opportunist, right? This guy is, um, well, scripture calls him a deceiver. His name kind of means that, but he's absolutely an opportunist. I was raised by an opportunist, so I know what one looks like. My dad was a car dealer, right? And, And I remember asking my dad in the 1970s, 1972, 73, cars weren't lasting very long right then, you know, in that period of time. And maybe two or three years you could get out of a new car. And I remember asking my dad, how come you're not a Christian? And he would respond, I'm a car dealer, right? Okay. I'm sorry if you're a car dealer this morning. No offense. I don't don't mean that to any of you. But just in that mentality of thinking, you know, cars weren't lasting very long at that period of time. And dad couldn't see the balance between being a believer and being a guy who would sell things that would cheat people. So he at least recognized there's a difference there. Well, Jacob is a guy who's totally an opportunist, and he's going to seize on this weakness because he knows his brother really well. He knows Esau, and so Esau is going to be bound by his word. He has to honor the agreement because Jacob made him Shabbat. The word Shabbat means to swear, right? 
It means to seven oneself. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. You getting annoyed, right? Two more times. I swear to you, I will sell you my birthright. I swear, I will sell you my birthright for a bowl of soup. What's going on here? Why would he do this? His father is extremely wealthy. He's the grandson of Abraham. Uh, let me just remind you where he sits positionally. Genesis 13:2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and in, and in silver and in gold. So Abram's got all this wealth that belongs to him and then his daddy Isaac, when Abraham dies, all these things come to Isaac. Watch the next verse, verse 24, 35, chapter 24, 35. The Lord has greatly blessed my master Isaac, so he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Here's what it means. They got a big pantry in the house. He can easily obtain food, but he clearly wants it now. I want what I want when I want it. And no one should stop me from it. So his destiny has become a bargaining chip. I'm willing to deal away my future even though God gave it to me. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. What a big heart, he gave bread. He actually threw in a loaf of bread with the stew, right? What a deal. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Just let, let verse 16 of chapter 12 hang around in your mind for a minute. Watch out. Watch out that there be no profaner. What is that? That person who tramples under the things of God. Now let that stand in contrast, especially if you grew up in church, to Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22 talks about this laundry list of things that are available to us through the work of the Holy Spirit if we're a follower of Jesus. Look with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Big one. Self-control. You know what that means to us, church? It means we have available to us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we have available to us an off switch. We do. God says there's an off switch. You come to me as the God of grace who sits on the throne of mercy. You're not in this baby mode where you're not progressing in your faith and you haven't let some root of bitterness take hold. You come to me as the God of mercy and grace. I will be faithful to meet you in your time of need and ask me as the God of grace so that you can say no. No, 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 no. I'm not going there. This is God's point out of this passage. See, if we're ruled by our appetite, we're gonna give in to all forms of desires. It, it can surface in money, it can surface in food, it can surface in power. All those things play on us all the time and they lead to not making wise life decisions. We can totally mess up our future by going after the wrong appetite. Things that God never called us to. And hear this, this is the truth of the Bible. These are the very things that Satan focuses on in our life. He probes. 
He pushes on us to test us for areas of weakness. It's called temptation. Pushing to see what we will yield to, what will we give into, what will we trade in our destiny for. And when that temptation works, he pounces on it. Scripture calls him a lion. He's like a roaring lion looking for people whom he can devour. Do you know that he tried that exact same thing with Jesus? Food, money, power, food, money, power, food, money, power. You're the son of God. Tell those stones to become bread. I know you're really hungry. 40 days without food, man. Show me. You're the son of God. Throw yourself down off this pinnacle. It, it, It says that. The angels will bear you up. Do you you have that kind of power? Tell you what, bow down to me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. You want wealth? I can lavish it on you. Food, money, power. Satan probes on human nature because he knows he can work against human nature. As believers, God has given us a gift and the gift is his guidance. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You got the Holy Spirit of God within you. He sees you as holy, and his guidance sounds like this. Don't go there. Don't do that. Sometimes it's a gentle whisper. Don't look at that. Don't walk through that door. Sometimes you wish it was a louder scream, don't you? Like God would scream, stay away! But many times it's just the gentle whisper of the Spirit. Don't go there. Satan understands that. Satan will say things to you like, God understands. It's right there. You deserve it. God knows you need it. Ever heard that voice? I mean, he's good at that, isn't he? And he knows when to play it on us. This perceived need for immediate gratification, I am absolutely convinced, is the great deceit of our generation that we live in. I don't care how old you are in this room, you belong to this generation. And it is the great deceit of our generation, and it's leading to bondage for a lot of people. Bondage because they can't progress forward in their life. So I need to ask you this question this morning. Is there a bowl of soup in your life? Is there something that Satan keeps pushing across the table? Go ahead, take it. You know you deserve it. Is that there? If, if it's there, if it's coming against you, and I know a human nature, it comes against us all the time, there's good news. There's good news to respond to that. But before I get there, hear me on this. When God says, don't do that, that doesn't mean play with it, taste it, touch it. It means don't go there. I I had a friend when I was 24 years old, early, early years of my ministry. A guy was older than me. He had kids at home and a married man who would commonly go with me on trips uh, to different places, sometimes where I was speaking at, and, and he had this habit of constantly watching women and then making the most rude comments, crude comments, about women he'd see going down sidewalks and in buildings. And I finally said to him, I just couldn't take it anymore. I said, what are you doing, man? You're, you're a believer in Christ. You serve on staff with me in this ministry. Why do you act like that? His response, I mean, he must have thought it through many times because the first thing he said to me was, my wife's okay with this. Lie, I found out later, right? The next thing he said was, it's okay to walk through the forest as long as you don't climb the trees. That's a lie of Satan. That's where that comes from, that kind of quick response. 
He had it in his head that I can okay as long as I don't go there. Well, what happened? He, his marriage ended in divorce because he was unfaithful. It, it, it just, you could see it coming because he was given into the temptation. You know what's really scary to me about this passage? Esau grew up with Isaac. He's the grandson of Abraham. Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham and Sarah give birth to a baby in their 90s because God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Isaac had to grow up knowing all of this. He grew up in a home where they talked about God and they talked about miracles, and yet he willfully determined to say, I'm not interested. God, I don't want that future. I'm going to turn my back on it. What's he doing? He's refusing to recognize the value of what God's given him. He's trampling under the things of God because of instant gratification. Here's the truth. He sells his future for a cheeseburger. I know it's a weak analogy, but it's 2015, right? Here's the truth for you. Everything this world has to offer is a cheeseburger in comparison to the greatness of Jesus Christ and what he brings us. He knows our future. He sees our destiny. So he brings opportunities to us. How are we going to respond to what he has for us? So Esau is this huge warning, right? His big warning flag. All the lights on the dash should be going off. Don't live for lesser things. Don't set the bar low. You don't have to settle for this on your own, though. I want you to know that. This is not like a pump you up kind of talk. You don't have to settle for trying to do this on your own. We have the strength of the Holy Spirit within us. I'm going to close with that thought, but I need to give you some information on the end of this story. There are generational consequences for decisions like you've watched this morning in Genesis 25. I'll help you to understand what I mean by that. Generational consequences because throughout history, the Jews, meaning the descendants of Jacob, became the bitter enemies of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Esau, remember he was called Edom. His nickname was Red. The Edomites were the offspring of Esau. So the Jews against the Edomites, the Edomites against the Jews down through history, warring cousins. It might surprise you to learn that King Herod was not a Jew. Even though he was king over the nations of the Jews, he was an Edomite who had been put on the throne because of his voracious personality. And so when Magi show up in Jerusalem and say, King, we've been told through the prophecy that there's a baby who's been born in the area and he is born king of the Jews Herod freaks out. I don't want another king on the throne, let alone a Jew. He's an Edomite. So Herod sets out to absolutely obliterate all the male children two years of age and under because he's bloodthirsty, because he's bitter, because he's profane, and he'll trample under the things of God. He's a descendant of Esau. Esau, who could have been the progenitor of the line of Jesus Christ, instead becomes the progenitor of King Herod. What a legacy. Traded in his destiny, and it had generational consequences, and it bears out even in the lifetime of Jesus. So King Herod becomes a tool of Satan to try and destroy Jesus. 
That's why I come all the way back around to say Satan is going to work really hard in 2016 to rob you of your destiny. He is. He's a roaring lion according to Scripture. Look at what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter's writing to the church. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He absolutely worked overtime on Jesus. Do you think he's going to do any less with you? The more you try and follow Jesus, the stronger you become in your walk, the more you can expect Satan to come up against you. But praise God that our God does more than just roar around like a lion. Last night in the Saturday night service, Sue Bustamante reminded me of my favorite verse in connection with this. I'd, I'd never thought about the two before we were talking in Q&A afterwards. If you haven't been to Saturday night before, we do Q&A uh, question and answer after the service. So Sue brings up 2 Chronicles 16.9 and she said, you know, there's a link between 1 Peter 5.8 with roaring lion and your favorite verse. And in a flash, I thought, I've never linked those before. I know you're dying to hear what 2 Chronicles 16.9 says. I'll tell you in just a second. But I, I said to her, you know what, Sue? I'll give you credit tomorrow because I'd never put those two together. Here's what 2 Chronicles 16.9 says. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the entire earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Wow, what an interesting link. Satan roars around like a lion looking for someone to devour. God roams to and fro across the whole earth with his eyes looking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's your God. You don't have to do this in your own strength. So Peter, who wrote 1 Peter 5, 8 about this roaring lion, just two verses later gives us verse 10. Look what you can lean into, church. Verse 10 says this, the God of all grace, those New Testament writers are huge on grace, right? They mention it all the time. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, that means God himself, church, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How cool is that? You have the Holy Spirit within you. God says, I will strengthen you. Come to my throne of mercy. I know it's really, really hard in the times of temptation. But God says, I'll help you to say no, 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 no. So here's my admonition for you this morning as we wrap up at 12.02 in the afternoon. Stop trying to conquer in your own power. God's power is available to you. And he will work through you if you just yield it up to him. God, I've come against this obstacle. I need your mercy. I need your strength. You may have to say it 30 times a day. That's okay. That's all right. God understands. He'll listen 31 times a day if you've got to do it 30. He'll just keep listening. So I want to pray for us that way. I'm going to include myself in this. All of us, we're all on the same plane. We come against these obstacles. So let me pray with you for that, all right? Let's close that way. Father, I know that represented among hundreds of people in this auditorium throughout the weekend that there are many obstacles I can't even begin to comprehend. But you know them intimately. You and every person here personally. You said you know the hairs on our head. You know us so well, you know our personalities while we're still in the womb. Father, I pray for your people these individuals who have taken time to study your word this morning. They didn't have to be here. 
In the midst of our Christmas break, we take time to look into your word and to know you better. So God, I ask that you would honor that by blessing each individual who's come here this morning by strengthening them. Father, favor us with the reminders of the Holy Spirit throughout this week ahead. God, 2016, all of it. Favor us with reminding us you are the God who is the God of mercy and you sit on a throne of grace and you will answer us in our time of need. Remind us, Father, that when Satan comes against us, you are more powerful. You are greater, you are stronger, you are mightier and you have defeated him on the cross. So, Father, we don't have to give in to these things. We yield to you. You are our master and our king. We ask for this power in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.